Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is Big E, and I'm here to talk to you about law for Virginia law enforcement officers. Uh, this is our regular podcast. We talk about issues that concern officers, patrol officers, investigators, detectives in Virginia regarding everything from use of force to search and seizure to new laws and cases and so on. And uh, it's for those of you out there who want to do the right thing, who, who want to do this job right, who want to learn, who want to expand your knowledge, expand your mind, and better serve your communities and strengthen your uh, departments and your agencies. So thanks for joining us. We've had some really great feedback. Thank you so much for all the comments, for the votes on iTunes. Um, Paul gave me a great comment uh, on one of the episodes on SoundCloud. He wrote, these podcasts are fantastic. Keep them coming. I wish I had these when I first started out. I'm taking lots of notes and we'll be sharing these with my squad and rookies that I train. Thank you. Uh, Paul, these are for guys just like you. You know, I, I kind of wish I'd been doing this a long time ago. And as soon as I started doing it and got comments from people back, I realized I probably should have been doing this a long time ago. But here we go. Um, today we're going to talk about electronic evidence. I do know some of you out there have been asking about the new special session from the General Assembly that's coming up. That starts on August 18th, and I've been checking online to see, you know, when are they going to post the new bills, the proposals, and so on, so we can look at them and analyze them, and I haven't seen them yet, but hopefully they'll come online soon. I do plan to give you guys updates about that and talk, to about, some of the, talk about some of the uh, proposals, but especially about you know, nothing's really real until it actually passes. So I think um, there's a lot of crazy ideas in there. There's a lot of ideas that are fine, and, and we'll see what there really is and talk about it when it becomes real. Today, though, we all want to talk about electronic evidence. We've been talking about electronic evidence now for the last couple of episodes. Up until now, what we really focused on is getting information from providers, from companies like Facebook or AT&T or Verizon or Google or WhatsApp or TikTok or whatever. But what I want to do now is shift and start talking about getting information from an actual device. And of course, that always is going to involve the search warrant. So what I really want to do for the next few episodes, and this is going to, I think we're going to do this over the course of the next few episodes, we're going to break it down, is really go in detail into the law about getting information from a device, if it's a phone or a computer or a car or whatever. And doing it in an effective way, doing it in a lawful way, what are the rules, what are the requirements, uh, what can you do to do a better job of writing search warrants and getting that information, and then some practical ideas too, you know, the, the, um, as much as writing a great search warrant uh, can help your case, it's no good if you can't get into the device. So we're going to talk about encryption and going dark and um, talk about some strategies and also what might be coming down the line as far as law regarding encryption. That may be changing soon, sooner than I think any of us really thought it would, but we'll have to see what the real impact is and what happens. So what I'm going to be doing in the course of the next few episodes is talking about best practices for seizing digital devices and then examining how to lawfully access the data uh, using a search warrant and then talk about some about digital forensics and best practices in digital forensics. And for today's episode, then, what I really want to focus on is best practices for seizing devices, right? So before we ever get to a situation where we're getting a search warrant for a device, we've got to actually physically get our hands on the device and do it in a lawful way. And that's what we're going to be focusing on in today's episode before we get into the search warrants and so on. So couple of questions here. How do I legally seize a device? How do I effectively seize a device? 
and then uh, we're going to talk about uh, we'll, we'll get to either today or next time uh, when do actually when do you actually obtain the search warrant. So let's start with legally seizing devices, right? Uh, we know that if, let's say, for example, I'm arresting somebody, the person has a phone on them. We know now from cases like Riley versus California, U.S. versus Worry, and so on, 2014 cases, that you have to obtain a warrant before you search a phone incident to arrest. But you don't necessarily have to get a warrant before you seize the phone, right? And this is important. If I've got somebody who's, let's say, um, they have been exploiting a child, and I'm arresting this person at the scene. Let's say the person has been, you know, has, has, has a child who he's been offering online for sexual services, and the child is 16 years old, and he's doing it out of a hotel room, and I find him, I track him down, and he's using, you know, not Backpage because that's closed, but let's say it's an old case Backpage. So we go and we find him and we arrest him in the parking lot, and he's got a phone on him. I can take that phone from him. I can't search it, right, but I can at least seize the phone in general. What's interesting, and we're going to talk about this uh, in a lot of depth as we go through and talk about going dark, though, is that these cases, Riley and Worry, which was really one case in 2014 from the U.S. Supreme Court that said you need a search warrant to search a digital device, said that traditional Fourth, except, Fourth Amendment exceptions do still apply, though, which is to say that if you had exigent circumstances, then you could search the phone. Uh, just like you could search a house if you had exigent circumstances. So if you have a serious enough case and there's a real need to do so uh, and there's not enough time to get a warrant um, or there's some other reason, some other exigent reason to enter and secure and then go get a warrant, uh, then it would be lawful for you to enter the device, to open the device uh, without a warrant. And when the Supreme Court envisioned what would an exigent circumstance look like in 2014, they imagined and they mentioned in their case two situations that they saw as potential exigent circumstances. The first was remote wiping, and the second was encryption. Now, back in 2014, when they wrote this opinion, those two things were kind of theoretical possibilities, but not very real. But of course, in June of 2014, they make this decision. In, I think it's September of 2014, Apple releases a new iOS, and that's iOS 7. And that comes standard with remote wiping. And in October of that year, they come out with the iPhone 5, which comes standard with encryption. Apple had designed this uh, something on their, on their software, on the board of the computer, called the Secure Enclave, a 256-bit uh, encryption that required the uh, person to have the actual passcode to get into the data. And if you don't have the passcode, then you don't get past the secure enclave and get into the data. So Apple devices, by the end of the year, 2014, come standard with encryption and the ability to remotely wipe them. And of course, that's what we're dealing with today, right? We have somebody who has an iPhone, and we expect that information is going to be encrypted for us. So immediately upon looking at this device, we're thinking to ourselves, all right, uh, how am I going to get into this device? It's important to recognize, though, that this that doesn't mean that every iPhone or every you know phone, every every phone with a passcode on it that you encounter is an exigent circumstance. I mean, if it if that meant that, that meant basically that there is no more warrant requirement because every digital device is a exception to the search warrant requirement. 
And in fact, the Fourth Circuit recently addressed this question in a case called Hupp versus Cook last year in 2019. What happens in Hupp versus Cook is that an officer arrests a woman for uh, over an argument over a dog, and there's an obstruction of justice allegation. So the point of the story is he he gets in a struggle with this woman while he's arresting her in her front yard, and her husband's standing there filming it using their using their uh, phone. The officer places the woman in the backseat of the car and then returns to seize. He wants to get that video. What happens, though, is, is so the husband is videoing it, and as he's taking, as the officer is taking the wife away, the wife says to her husband, um, hey, did you get that? And his response is, don't worry, babe, I got that blank, you know, got that shit or whatever. So the... Uh, then he retreats inside the house. When the officer secures in the house, he sort of secures the woman in his car. He goes back and he enters the house without a search warrant and seizes the phone and seizes a bunch of other digital devices. And his argument in that case is, well, it was lawful for me to do that because I was concerned about the video being wiped, being removed. Digital evidence can be easily destroyed, and so I wanted to seize it. Well, of course, we don't allow that argument. We don't we don't follow that argument in drug cases, right? Drugs can easily be destroyed. Somebody can flush drugs down the toilet immediately, right? If you're doing a search warrant for methamphetamine, it can be very easily destroyed. And yet, that doesn't mean that every drug search warrant is an exigent circumstance. Uh, so, therefore, in the eyes of the court, it's not like you could enter in the courts express concern, right? If you bought this argument, then you could enter the home of every person living nearby who stood in their doorway or their window recording an arrest to seize that device without a warrant simply because the evidence can be destroyed. It's not simply the ease with which evidence can be destroyed. It's not simply the ease with which evidence can be concealed that gives you an exigent circumstance. It's the fact that you have a reason to believe that specific to the facts of your case that the evidence is going to be destroyed or concealed. And so that's what you have to be able to demonstrate to have an exigent circumstance for a phone. So again, getting back to my parking lot with my suspect, um, it, you know, you have a suspect who I've arrested now, and I've arrested him for, um, uh, for uh, exploiting this child. Uh, and so I've got this phone, and let's say when we get a hold of it, it's unlocked, right? Or I can very easily unlock it. And I'm going to talk about this in a future episode, too, about strategies and tactics for unlocking. But suffice to say, somehow I can unlock this phone right there on the scene. Would I have an exigent circumstance sufficient to at least keep the phone open and not let it lock and not let the passcode lock it uh, until such time as I can get a search warrant. Well, the question would be, is there anything specific to the facts of your case as you have them that would provide an exigent circumstance? Well, you know, again, does he have accomplices who could engage in remote wiping? Is there a concern that there's somebody else who's still on the loose or he has family members or so on? Um, so are you concerned about remote wiping? Or are there facts that are specific to encryption? Um, will he give you the passcode? Can you get the passcode? If you can't get the passcode, can you get into this phone? What model of phone is it? If it's today and it's 2020 and you're taking off of him an iPhone 7, you can probably get into that phone. It's probably not an exigent circumstance. It's probably a situation where you, you could take it to your technical unit 
and your technical unit probably could get into that phone. It might take a while, but they might be able to do it. On the other hand, if it's a brand new iPhone, if it's an iPhone 11 or iPhone 12, and I don't mean to always mention Apple products, but um, they have much easier, it's much easier, they have a much easier system to name them, right? A numbering system than, you know, Samsung Galaxy S3, 4, whatever, whatever, right? So if it's the latest generation of iPhone, you may not currently be able to get into that phone. And so you may be able to say, look, in this case, this is an iPhone 12. He refused to give me the passcode. What that meant to me was that I had only a certain amount of time to get into that phone before that phone became unavailable to me, became encrypted. And therefore, I, I needed to at least use his face to unlock the phone or at least take the phone in the unlock format and keep it open until such time as I can get a search warrant. Remember, though, just like with drug cases, the fact that you have an exigent circumstance doesn't mean you can enter and then go ahead and do your full complete search. The fact that you have an exigent circumstance means you can go in, enter, secure, hold the property, and then go get a search warrant. Now, you might have to do some things while you're going to enter and hold the property. You might have to go into each room in the house and, you know, make sure there's nobody else there and so on. But with a phone, pretty much what you're going to need to do is get the phone open, keep it open, and maybe hook it up to power or put it in a Faraday bag or somehow isolate it or whatever and make sure the phone doesn't go to sleep. You're going to want to talk to your forensic unit uh, about what their preferred practice is in your jurisdiction for uh, keeping uh, device for, for processing devices, right? Some basic people are in airplane mode and so on. You may have to do those different types of things. Again, you should talk to your forensic unit. You should train yourself. You should get to be aware of what the current best practices are for uh, getting into digital devices. Keep in mind that these practices change, right? Uh, so with Face ID, one of the things that uh, ch changed was that when you looked at a phone that was essentially a face ID unlock attempt and after 10 face ID unlock attempts and there was after 10 times that the phone sees someone's face and the face is not the face of the person who's the registered user the phone would lock itself and require a passcode so what that meant was, let's say, again, I'm in the parking lot and I have this gentleman that I've arrested. I don't know why I call him a gentleman. He's terrible. But I took his phone and then I take the phone and I want to get his, his passcode. So I ask him about the passcode or I give it to somebody else. Each time somebody looks at this phone, that's a face ID unlock attempt. And if I'm planning to try to use his face to unlock the phone, I better do that soon or I better cover up that camera and prevent it from identifying people's faces and making an evaluation of whether or not it's the user because after 10 times it's just going to require the passcode no matter what. Um, and then as far as the chain of custody then too remember that you're gonna it's it's a piece of physical evidence like anything else and therefore if I'm handing it around or I'm you know I'm turning it on or I'm messing with it or whatever you're gonna have to be able to establish who handled the phone and when and what they did to the phone in order to demonstrate that it's forensically reliable and foren has forensic integrity at trial, right? So again, if you're trying to get this phone open or you're trying to keep it open or whatever, you need to make sure you're keeping a tight evidence log about what is done with the phone. Was it put in airplane mode? If so, when? And so on. Um, because those will be questions that will be asked at trial and that someone will have to be able to answer.
I'm going to talk to you guys in a, in a minute about uh, time limits and so on, but I do want to take a minute and uh, talk to you guys about Blue Help. Um, Blue Help, the mission of Blue Help, this is a, a nonprofit organization, um, but it's to reduce mental health stigma through education, advocate for benefits for those suffering from post traumatic stress, acknowledge the service and sacrifice of law enforcement officers, especially those we lost to suicide. Um, assist officers in their search for healing and bring awareness to suicide and mental health issues in law enforcement. Um, I've worked in law enforcement for, you know, about 20 years. And I remember at the beginning, you know, especially, um, you didn't talk about uh, what this job did to you. Um, you're, you were supposed to basically eat that and keep walking. And um, we certainly looked out for each other. Officers looked out for each other. People, you know, if you had to stop at two o'clock in the morning, you'd go back somebody up. But as far as watching out for each other's mental health, that wasn't a big priority. I remember at least when I started a long time ago. Um, and over the course of my career, I've lost several law enforcement colleagues to suicide. It's because of organizations like Blue Help now that are really starting to try to train, to share information, um, to try to save lives and improve the quality of life for our first responders. Um, if, you, if you're looking for an organization that can provide help, that can provide training, um, check them out. They have a big registry of different organizations. They share information about organizations that are available. Um, they do camp uh, for kids who have lost, for uh, families who've lost a uh, law enforcement officer to suicide. They're at bluehelp.org. Please do check them out. So the other issue I want to talk about today is Again, I'm here in the parking lot. I'm arresting this guy. I've got this phone. I know I need to get a search warrant. When do I get that search warrant? And this is a sort of a complicated question, right? We know that uh, we can lawfully get a search warrant in our jurisdiction. Let's say I'm in the city of Springfield. I can get a search warrant in the city of Springfield and ship that phone off to a forensic, a cat, a forensic you know, Department of Forensic Science or state police or FBI or whoever somewhere else, that that's okay. And that was a change made to 19.253 back in 2015. But that answers the question about where. It doesn't answer the question about when. And the U.S. versus Pratt, which is a case, and I'm getting my facts here, the parking lot of the situation from really Pratt, um, this was a case in February 2019 that shocked a lot of people from the Fourth Circuit, but it was the Fourth Circuit repeating something it said many times before. It's just that we've never thought about it much in electronic evidence situations. Again, so Pratt is that case where you've got a guy who is um, offering a child for sexual services online. Um, he's creating child pornography with this child. He's exploiting this child. They locate the victim. She's at a hotel. They arrest him, and they arrest him in the parking lot, and they take his phone. So they have the phone lawfully because, again, they're searching him incident to arrest. They've got the phone. The phone is potential evidence. They take it. But then they no need to get a search warrant for it. They know they have to do that. But they don't get the search warrant for 31 days. And at the end of the 31 days, they get the warrant. They search it. They find the child pornography. They go to trial. He gets convicted. It gets appealed to the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit reverses the conviction. And the court complains that the government's only explanation for the delay in this case was because the defendant had committed crimes both in North Carolina and South Carolina. He'd trafficked this child across the state lines, and the agents couldn't decide where to get the warrant. Now, keep in mind here, again, that the officers lawfully seized the phone. There was no question about that. But the court said again and repeated that a law, a search, the seizure that is lawful at its inception can nevertheless violate the Fourth Amendment because its manner of execution, including the timing, 
unreasonably infringes on the uh, on the possessory interests of the person. So the rule essentially then is after seizing an item without a warrant, an officer must make it a priority to secure the search warrant that complies with the Fourth Amendment. And that's a statement from a case called U.S. versus Burgard, but the court repeats it. So you have to make it a priority. Now, does that say then that 31 days is always too long? And the answer to that is no, it's not. So what is the law? What does the law say, right? Well, again, let's start with the basics, right? I, you as a law enforcement officer can seize property in, for example, an exigent circumstance, right? And so you look at the question, number one, is there probable cause to believe the item contains contraband or evidence of a crime? Okay. Do you have good reason to fear that if you don't seize it, the defendant's going to destroy it before you could obtain a warrant? Right. So that's another good question. Could you leave it on the scene and then get a warrant and come back? And then did you make reasonable efforts to reconcile your law enforcement needs with the demands of privacy? Right. These are sort of the basic requirements in any exigent circumstance case. So again, I'm in the parking lot. I've got this guy with his phone. Well, I can't leave him with the phone, and I'm not going to leave the phone in the parking lot, right? So I've got to seize it, but I still have to balance my needs with his Fourth Amendment rights. And so uh, therefore, what the court says essentially then is, I need to get a search warrant expeditiously. Keep in mind, though, this is different if it's inherent contraband, right? And if you think about this for a second, right? Um, Let's say I arrest somebody and he's got drugs on him. I don't have to get a search warrant for the drugs, right? It's inherently contraband. You don't have to get a search warrant for those drugs. Um, things that are inherently evidence, a, a knife cover, a bloody knife or a gun or clothes covered in uh, blood or whatever, something that's inherently evidence of a crime, that has independent value without getting the warrant. And so you can seize that from him. Uh, without an additional warrant. But it's the phone, really, that we're talking about here that requires the, the warrant. If the phone were stolen, by the way, and this is sort of an interesting twist on it, I think you could still take the phone. If there was a phone belonging to somebody else, you could take the phone um, and, and not have to get a warrant unless, though, you were going to search the phone. I think if you were going to search the contents of the phone, you would still need to get a search warrant. But absent that, if you just wanted to seize the phone and hold on to the phone because it was stolen property, it had been stolen from a Verizon store or your robbery victim or whatever, you could keep the phone without a warrant. But here, and again, you might say, well, the phone had child pornography on it, so isn't that contraband? And the court says no. The court says that's a belief that the item has contraband. That's not something that inherently is contraband. Again, if you just simply believe, if you reasonably believe it has contraband, you still have to diligently obtain a warrant in a reasonable period of time in order to analyze that device lawfully. So how long do you have, right? What's the amount of time that you have? And the answer is, it depends on what your resources are and what the obstacles are to you searching the device. As it turns out, and the case Pratt itself acknowledges, delays longer than 31 days can still be lawful. Uh, they talk about a case called Valamont where there was a 45-day that was a delay. But the court said that was okay because the county's resources were overwhelmed. Um, somebody else had had access to the computer, so it wasn't even the defendant's really computer alone. There was a case called Laced where there was a 25-day delay, but it was reasonable because the agent was working on the affidavit, but he, he had investigations in 10 counties, um, and he was, you know, delayed. There were delays due to weekends, holidays, tactical decisions, legal questions, technical needs. 
A really good example of this is U.S. versus Brown, which is a district court case out of Charlottesville, but it's a case where police had seized a computer that, that had child pornography on it. The defendant admitted it had child pornography, and the investigator, who was a guy named Nick Rudman, uh, who was working with the FBI, had you know acted reasonably, diligently in the eyes of the court. Um, he'd gone to try to get one agency to do the analysis. They couldn't do it. He went to another one. He asked Fairfax County to help out. They were backed up. They told the defendant at the scene, they're like, look, this is going to be months before I can get into this device. Ultimately, it was 78 days. But they were able to document and make clear what was causing the delay. We asked, we tried, we went here, we went here. And they were able to come to court and say, these are the places we tried. This is how we, you know, we stayed on it. But this is the best that we could do. And in Pratt, the FBI wasn't able to do that. They weren't able to say that their resources were strained. Were the resources strained? They probably were. Were the, was the lab backed up? The lab probably was. But nobody was able to come to court and substantiate that and talk about that. So the question for you is, do you have records like that? Do you keep records? Do you write in your report? I asked the lab today if they were able to look at my device, and they told me no. They were still delayed for two weeks because of a new murder case or whatever. Uh, could you do that right now with the delays that you have? Could you, could you document it, explain it, come to court and testify? The delay itself can be fatal and problematic. Um, there's a case called U.S. versus Mitchell, which is a case from 2009. It's an old case, but that case, the court suppressed the search after only a 21-day delay. And the reason that the officer gave in that case was he had left town for a lengthy training, and unfortunately, this is what he testifies to on the witness stand, he didn't think the warrant was urgent. And again, when you go back to that language that the court uses the court says the rule basically is after seizing an item without a warrant, an officer must make it a priority to secure a search warrant that complies with the Fourth Amendment. If the testimony that you're going to give on the witness stand is, I don't think getting a warrant is urgent, how do you think the court's going to react to that, right? And Mitchell, the answer from the court was, well, then you didn't make it a priority and therefore the evidence is suppressed. So the takeaway that I want you to take from here is, uh, that right there at the outset when I'm thinking of search seizing, seizing a device, if I have a situation where, again, uh, under the facts that I've got, um, I do have probable cause to believe that the item has contraband or evidence of a crime, right? And that's the first requirement. If I'm going to be seizing something from somebody and my intention is to hold on to it and not just put it in their property at the jail or whatever and let it be released to them if they want it to be released, if I actually want to hold on to this and say, I'm going to keep this from you and get a search warrant, I need to have probable cause to believe that the item contains contraband or evidence of a crime. That's number one. You don't get to get into a phone unless you have that probable cause. Otherwise, it's just their property, like their belt or their shoes or wallet or whatever. And then number two, you need to have good reason to fear that without seizing it, that there's going to be some destruction of the evidence or it's going to make basically make the evidence unavailable to you. And again, it's easy if you're in the parking lot, right? You're not going to leave it there, and you're certainly not going to let it be, you know, put in the defendant's property where he can destroy it. If I've got probable cause to believe it's got child pornography or child exploitation material on it, then, you know, that's my good reason, right? But if it's something different, then I want you to think about how do I articulate my reason to fear that the evidence is going to be destroyed? So that's the second requirement. And then the third requirement is going to be that reasonable effort to get a warrant as soon as you can. And again, if you're if your forensic unit is backed up and they're like, hey, look, if you get the warrant today, I can't get into this phone for X number of days, uh, then, you know, that, that might be your reason for delaying and getting that search warrant. But you need to document it to take, your, take, uh, take care of yourself. 
So that's where we're going to leave it today. And then my goal for next time is to talk about uh, passwords, talk about encryption, um, talk about, you know, probably the question in your mind too is, okay, well, you know, and a lot of people ask this question, once I get this warrant, when is it served? Is it served when I take the phone to the forensic unit? Is it served when the forensic unit plugs the phone in to start its analysis? Is it served when they actually open the phone? Is it served when they download the phone, when they give me the disk? You know, when is this actually served? And that's a great question, but that's going to be for a future episode. So all I can tell you is stay tuned and come back. For today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Stay safe and don't get captured.